everyone. This is Lori Weaver. Welcome to Compulsive Overeating Diary, day 85. It's now been 38 weeks, two days, since I began this experiment where I talk about my thoughts and feelings about compulsive overeating rather than heading to the chips. And happy Halloween. This is a weird and wonderful bonus episode hybrid where Mark will hearken back to our old show, Daily Adventure Tales, and become our special ghost host and announce all of our special Halloween segments. Our music will also be different and Halloween-y, and this will be an episode of celebration of spooky fun during a typically scary time of year for those of us who have eating issues. Welcome to Lori's Halloween extravaganza. Tricks and treats abound with spectacular contributions by Donnie, Cheryl, Suzanne, and Lori's voice acting friend, Max. There's even a spooky campfire story by me, yours truly, your Halloween ghost host. <laughs> Stay tuned for a special snippet of the scariest monster competition by Apache Tomcat. Then Lori will fill you in on what she's scared to let go of today. Boom, boom, boom. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You are invited to the ultimate monster Halloween scare contest. Today's finalists are Dracula. Will you say hello? And the Wolfman. Let the competition begin! Well, I don't know if that monster contest song really inspires me to let go of things as much as Josh's song normally does, but I thought it would be fun to have a Halloween-y theme going throughout the show today. And in any case, I already know what I need to let go of. Today's frightening topic is based on a great comment conversation between Suze and Cheryl back on day 79, and I wanted to highlight parts of it before I give you my take that was inspired by recent events. Cheryl says to Suze, but what you said about the bigger you've gotten, the more invisible you are, made me really choke up. I feel so much that way. I'm a yo-yo dieter, and I've always figured that it was because when I'm down 30 pounds, people say such nice things. Then I gain it back, and they don't mention it, like it's taboo. The question I asked myself when I read your comment was, am I sabotaging myself deliberately to stay invisible because I got so close to who I might become that I scared myself to death? I've got to do some pondering on that. So don't you dare run off and hide now. We have a lot in common, girlfriend. And Suze replies to Cheryl. Cheryl, ditto, two, or thrido. In a way, I like to hear that people thought I looked nice, but that compliment automatically comes with the dark flip side of, quote, compared to how you used to look, unquote. Or I love this one. You've lost weight. Good job. 
keep it up, keep it up. We wouldn't want you to get complacent and think you're done or that you've reached complete acceptability. So it's hard to know what to say to someone who's lost weight, I guess. We don't have the same hang-ups about other changes in appearances like a haircut. Oh, you like my haircut? It's cute? Well, I'm sorry my hair was so hideous before. <laughs> Cheryl answers with this. So it is hard to know what to say to someone who's lost weight, I guess. You know what? I think that would make a really good discussion for Lori on her podcast. It's very, very, very relevant. It's fairly easy to support each other on here because everything is out in the open. But what to say to someone who isn't in this loop without doing exactly what we were just talking about and undoing all the good that they have done? I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a great question. And it really is a good question. And I answered at the time back on day 79 that I was going to put it in my little book to put into a future episode. And stuff that happened this week really brought it back to my mind. And I think it is kind of frightening and scary and unsure. So it's a perfect topic to have on a Halloween-y episode. Because, well, I have to go back a little bit in the way back machine, not very far, just to last Friday. My lovely husband, Mark, had a plumbing project in our house whereby he needed to turn off the water all day and maybe into the night. Now he knows that, to put it delicately, I need to use the ladies' room when I need to, like immediately and pretty often compared to other ladies my age. And so he was worried that I would be bitching and moaning and complaining and making his life misery if I was around our house while he had this water turned off for his plumbing project. So he suggested that I take a day away and go stay at a hotel near our house that I like to go to and have a swim and just kind of have a nice day to myself. Day to myself, I'm thinking. What am I going to do with a day all to myself? I'm already alone so much. Why do I want to be alone even more? But I took it on as a challenge and thought, you know what? I'm going to have a intuitive solo adventure day where I do whatever I want whenever I want and I'm going to be completely nice to myself and see how that feels. Well, long story short, it felt really great. And in fact, I posted pictures from this on my Instagram account, Lori Dreamweaver. So if you follow me on Instagram, you got to look at the pictures as they happen in real time. And I enjoyed it so much that I also wrote a blog post about it for CompulsiveOvereatingDiary.com. So if you're not subscribed to getting my updates, then you can go to CompulsiveOvereatingDiary.com and you can see this blog post about my adventure day. And while we're on that topic, let me take a brief note to say, if you go to CompulsiveOvereatingDiary.com, there's a little box where you can put your email in where you can subscribe to get updates right in your, in, right in your inbox every time I post a new show or whether I post a blog post. But back to my topic, anyway. As part of my adventure day, I actually bit the bullet and went clothes shopping. That's right, clothes shopping. And normally I can't stand to go clothes shopping because it doesn't matter what I weigh, whether I was very slender or on the heavier side, it doesn't matter. Clothes don't fit me well because I'm shaped like kind of a triangle. I really have sort of an odd shape. Well, my hips are so much bigger, my hips and thighs than my waist, nothing fits you know, things are poking out or things are baggy and I have to go to a tailor. And so it's not fun for me. It's never fun for me. It always means usually that I have to gather up clothes of every single size in the world 
and try it on and get dressed, undressed, dressed, undressed, and tote myself back out to pick more sizes up to see what size am I. And then I end up buying whatever happens to fit, whether I like it or not. So most girls or ladies who like to go shopping and say, oh, would this look nice on me? Isn't this cute? That has not ever been true for me, not at any size. But I thought I'm really looking kind of ratty and I would enjoy to have a new outfit to wear to the theater that weekend. So I'm just gonna go to Macy's and try something on. So I got this pair of kind of skinny black slacks and one kind of top, like a, a nice version of a t-shirt, I would say, but a, a, just a regular top. And I tried these on in the Macy's changing room and I couldn't believe it. These pieces of clothing actually fit me all the way. Whatever size it is, whatever company makes it, whatever it was, these clothes fit me the first time. And I was so shocked that I took a photo of that and posted it on my Instagram account and also posted it on this blog posting I'm talking about. And I tell you, the cut of this clothing was extremely flattering. I think the picture makes me look like I'm about 10 or 15 pounds less than I am. I mean, really flattering. I said, man, either these clothes are super flattering or Macy's is really smart and put mirrors in their <laughs> dressing room. It's like the fun house in reverse that makes you look slender because I really look good in that picture. Well, what's wrong with that, you say? Well, nothing. I felt good, I felt happy, I was very surprised, very pleased that on my adventure day I actually got an outfit that I liked how I looked in it and I liked the clothes, so I got in and out within 10 minutes and felt very pleased. Now I also mentioned to you last show that Facebook, my personal Facebook, is not a page I use very much. Now I post almost every single day or several times a day on the Compulsive Overeating Diary page of Facebook and give you status and what I'm up to and I put some pictures there and things like that. But because my personal Facebook page is tied sometimes to my Instagram account, this picture of me looking nice in this outfit went to my personal page. So, you know, my mom, my relatives, my friends could see this picture. And a friend who I hadn't seen in person for quite some time mentioned on this picture that I look thinner. Well, you know, I felt kind of like Suze did, you know, because I knew in my heart I wasn't any thinner since last she'd seen me. And if anything, I've put on weight and I'm heavier than when last she saw me. This just happened to be a photo where I looked very good. And that made me so depressed. It made me feel like, God, I don't even want to see this friend because then she's going to see that I'm not thinner, that if anything, I'm fatter. And it kind of took all my intuitive progress and threw it in the trash temporarily. You know what I mean? I felt that shame, that tidal wave of shame kind of overwhelmed me. Like, well, man, it's been so long since this friend has seen me. I've had plenty of time to, you know, lose some weight. And I should have. And I wish I had. And I wish I hadn't been fatter. And maybe I'm making a mistake to try intuitive eating. And all of these thoughts and feelings that can bubble up when you've got that, I feel, quote, fat, unquote, right? So back to Cheryl's point. What should we say to someone who's lost weight? Because many of you brave companions are doing fitness programs or diet programs or doing things where you're actively trying to lose weight 
or you're a successful intuitive eater who's been gone long enough on this road that you are starting to stabilize perhaps at a lower weight than what you were before. And that's something to celebrate, right? We're always happy when we're able to feel like we're making progress towards our goals, and that includes our physical goal. But on the other hand, like what Sue says, if you say to them, yay, you really are looking fantastic, it does feel like that flip side is in there. Yes, compared to that slob that you were looking like before, you know? That's why I think it's best policy really never to mention someone's physical appearance at all unless they bring it up. You know, now, you should never bring it up to Mark because I said to him before I came down here to record, hey, hon, do you think I'm thinner than before? Hoping he'd say yes. And he goes, no, actually, I think you put on a couple of pounds. I'm like, oh, really? He says, yeah, hold up your shirt. Let me look. He says, yeah, I think you got a couple of pounds around your hips. I'm like, oh, great, crap. Well, thanks, Mark. But at least I know that he's honest, right? But when you do notice somebody's physique, I remember even when I was at Weight Watchers and I was losing the 130 pounds and I was thrilled when people would notice, after a while it got very tiresome. It seemed like that was all people wanted to talk about is how thin I was getting or how I'm shrinking away or, God, you've lost a ton, which always pissed me off because... You know, that's kind of rude to say I've lost a ton, even if it's true. I mean, I wasn't close to a ton, but you know what I mean. It kind of made me mad. Like, oh, what do you mean? Are are you, like, mentally judging me every time I walk by on how big my butt is? Why? But in our society, most people assume that if you're getting thinner, that's a good thing until you cross the line whereby you are considered too thin, which I think is different for a normal person than perhaps a model it seems like ballet dancers and models just get thinner and thinner and thinner, way beyond what I would consider healthy, though I'm not the arbiter of what weight should be. But, you know, we really have a skewed idea, I think, of how joyful it is to be losing weight. Now I'm going to give you another story. The first time that I did Weight Watchers, I went from weighing around 200 pounds to 145, around there. And I did this while I was still a school teacher. So in about a course of a year, I lost, I guess that would be like 50-some pounds. And it all occurred, like I started losing weight at the very beginning of the school year and kind of finished up at the start of the next school year. And my principal actually stopped me in the hall with concern because he was worried that I was losing weight because I might be sick, like something was wrong with me. (laughs) And I had to assure him, no, I am actually losing weight on purpose. And this was so slow that I was only losing like a pound a week. But my old-fashioned principal was concerned for me because my body type had changed over time. And his first thought wasn't, congratulations, Laura, you look great, but are you sick? Do you have cancer? Is something wrong with you I need to know about? And say, no, no, I'm doing this on purpose. And he was like, oh, good, I was a little bit worried about you. So that was a very strange experience that my principal was worried (laughs) because I was losing weight. Because all the rest of my life, all I'd ever heard was huge congratulations and how wonderful it was that I was losing weight which brings me back to this story of my pants and looking good in the photo and my true size and how I feel about that. And how 
hard it is right now for me. You know, you've been hearing from Amy in Wisconsin was having a little bit of a struggle. Stephanie from Quebec was having a little bit of a struggle. Many of us who've been trying to go a little bit more onto the intuitive eating route have been having a little struggle of late. And I think it kind of comes after the honeymoon period, right? Because when we first start doing intuitive eating, it is so wonderful to finally give up that judgment about ourselves and judgment about what food we're eating. It just feels so great. But all of us who are kind of going that route, or I will have to say most of us, I don't know the heart of every one of you, but many of us who go this route still have deep inside this secret wish to get thinner, to be thinner, to feel better about ourselves by being thinner. To be thin is to feel good. To be thin is to look better. The more thin we look, the better we look in our society. The more we're fitting in with the expectations of society, the easier it is to go through the day and feel maybe less self-conscious. And to a point, right? Like I said, when I was really large and then I got thinner, in a way, I, everybody was looking at me then. Everybody was staring at me. How much thinner was I getting, right? Everybody commented on it. It was like I had this laser beam of focus on me that didn't let me just go through life unnoticed. It made me very uncomfortable. Whereas before I would be teased and bullied for the size of my legs, now it was a matter of what was I eating and also how thin was I getting and was I over-exercising, which I actually was. But my weight seemed to be like a focus for everybody for about a year. Then... I got to the place where I was meeting strangers, people I hadn't known at a heavier weight, who just met me at my new quote-unquote normal weight, because I kept that weight off for a couple of years. And to them, I was just, you know, a normal-sized person. And that was kind of cool. It was a relief until it made me mad. Well, you guys have no idea how big I used to be. And so then I would find ways to sneak that into the conversation about how big I used to be so that they could be impressed with me for how thin I was. So I thought, that's kind of strange too. I was mad about people noticing until they didn't. And then I was mad that they weren't giving me credit for all the work that I had done to become normal and therefore fit in. (laughs) So yes, it's very tricky. I think now in my heart of hearts, what I wish is whether I'm looking bigger or smaller, that I could still feel okay about myself. Whether I wish my body was a little bit smaller or not, I wish that I didn't feel like this sense of shame if I'm getting bigger, right? I don't wish to be bigger. I'm not saying the bigger the better. I'm not that way. I'm kind of like, hey, whatever your size is, it's what your size is. And that's nothing to do with who you are as a person. That's got to do with your size. That's genetics, your age, what kind of activities you do, what is a normal eating day for you, all kinds of things. You know, there's people that have slower metabolisms, faster metabolisms. They need to eat one way for health or they eat some way for their religion. You just don't know what people have got going on. Like for me, my recent weight gain could be, I don't know, stress. Could be that I'm really letting my intuitive self slip maybe I'm not paying as much attention because for a while there when I was really doing well and paying attention I think I was gradually losing a little bit and I think maybe I've kind of gotten cocky 
and let that slide and turn intuitive eating into whatever the hell eating, right? I think that might be what's going on with me a little bit. So to wrap up the scary topic and back to fun, I say that don't mention somebody's physical appearance as regard to their weight. Just don't mention it. If you think they look nice, just say, wow, you look especially nice today. It's really cool. Or I like that color on you. It looks nice, you know. Or just say, hello, I'm glad to see you. How about that? That's safe. Hi, I'm really glad to see you. You look happy. You know, something. Well, if you guys have some ideas, Brave Companions, please come to day 85 and post them. And let's start a discussion on this because I don't think there's any black or white answer. But it certainly has brought up a whopping bunch of thoughts for me. So I'm looking forward to hearing what it brings up for you. Thanks, Donnie, for getting us in the Halloween spirit. And now, for a truly spine-tingling tale, Lori reads a true-life ghost story sent in by Cheryl. I remember getting up to go to the bathroom. The annoying red digital display on the alarm clock insisted it was 2.20 as I squirmed carefully back under the sheet. It was April and a warm one at that, but just cool enough in our basement apartment in the old Chandler house to be great sleeping weather. I laid there for a long time, drifting in and out of sleep. I adjusted myself, trying to get comfortable on our bumpy old mattress, then adjusted myself again and again. I was just about ready to admit defeat and get up when I rolled back over on my side of the bed and saw someone standing next to me, someone in a red checked bathrobe. Being a little on the superstitious side, my first reaction was, oh my God, Dad died. It it took me a minute to remember that Dad didn't have a robe like that. Then I noticed the hands, hands that hung down to both sides, an old man's hands. They were wrinkled and wasted. The parchment skin stretched tightly across the framework of his bones. I didn't look up above the hands, above where the belt was tied in a square knot. Oh, Lord, you are so dreaming, I said to myself, and flipped the sheet up over my head. I laid very still for several minutes, then, unable to resist, inched the sheet down from my face. He was still there, standing perfectly still, arms stiff at his side. The hair on my arm stood straight up. A shiver started at the base of my skull and rippled its way down my back. It was then I noticed how cold the air in the room had gotten that when I breathed out, I could see my breath form inches from my lips. The figure hadn't moved, but I was too afraid to look up. Instead, I reached over to grab my husband and have him look, but all I found was an empty bed. That's when I started to scream. I heard the African violet get knocked off the plant stand in the living room. A couple, damn it all, the hells then my much annoyed husband came back into the bedroom dragging a stub toe foot. <coughs> What's the matter, he asked, flipping on the light switch, then stopping suddenly in the doorway. He could feel the cold permeating the room. 
Blowing out, he watched his hoary, pale breath drifting into nothingness. I rolled back over and looked at the side of the bed. The man was gone. Arn limped to the bed and sat down, wrapping his arms around me. My skin was cold to the touch, and I was shivering like crazy. Where were you, I demanded, still feeling the waves of fear quivering along my arms and back. Timbuktu, I guess. Man, I think I was sleepwalking. I've never done that before. For a moment, I tried to rationalize the whole episode, tried to convince myself it had been him walking in his sleep who'd been standing confused by the bed. But that was obviously not true, as he didn't even own a bathrobe. Still caught up in the frightening moment, I explained what I'd seen. I couldn't stop shaking. The cold had seeped into my very bones, and the whole thing had literally scared the piss right out of me. I rolled over to his side of the bed and got up, intending to go to the bathroom. When I crossed the threshold to the living room, I stopped, and so did the cold. I turned to watch Arn follow me, his breath preceding every step. It occurred to me that old Mr. Chandler, who lived upstairs, might have wandered down the basement in his sleep, unlatching the door that led from the apartment to the basement proper, but in the kitchen, our side was still locked. There was no way he could have gotten in. Then it hit me that the rest of the apartment was toasty warm. We went back to the bedroom thinking we imagined the whole thing, but we hadn't. The chilly air felt stale and smothering like a mausoleum. We heard the commotion in the kitchen, a scrape and a crash. Someone's coming in the kitchen window, I whispered to Arn. We crept quietly to the door and peeked in. Not a burglar. Our set of steak knives had fallen off the wall. I hurried to pick them up and stopped dead in my tracks. In the living room, the old rocker we bought at a garage sale to start our nursery with was creaking in loud, slow, rolling groans. I looked at Arn, his face drained of color. Forgetting the knives, we went back to the living room. The rocker was perfectly still. But in the bedroom, the little ceramic squirrel I'd bought as a gift for my grandmother, then retrieved as a memento when she had died, fell over on the dresser. We stood rooted to the spot for what seemed like hours. In the end, there was no way we could sleep in that tomb-cold bedroom. I called and woke up my parents to tell them what had happened and that we were on our way to their house for the night. When we came home the next day, the bedroom was fine. We hung the knives back up, I put the squirrel in my underwear drawer, and after a few tense moments trying to settle back in that night, things got back to normal. Until a week later. I came home from work to find a package on my doorstep where the mailman had left it. Opening it, I found two hand-crocheted tablecloths and a note from my Aunt Dolores. I was cleaning out the closet last week and found these tablecloths Mom made up when us kids were young. I had the strangest feeling that she wanted you and Cindy to have them. Enjoy, love ever, Aunt D. My grandmother had been gone eight years. As I stood there in the living room thinking I'd call my sister, I heard the rattle in the bedroom. Not again, I thought. Shit, it's broad daylight for crying out loud. In my don't give me a hard way to go mode, I charged into the bedroom and stood stock still as I realized the rattling was coming from my underwear drawer. I didn't open it. I curled up on the bed with the tablecloths in my arms crying. That's where Arn found me 45 minutes later when he got home from work, still too spooked to move. The strange happening stopped that day. I still have my grandmother's tablecloth and her ceramic squirrel. There was no mystery to be solved, according to my dad. He was convinced that my grandparents had come calling. I've since heard that when there are children present, especially babies, can be increased paranormal activity. Whether that applies to babies still in the womb or not, I have no clue. 
Superstitious body that I am, however, I figured if it was my paternal grandmother, the most formidable 96-pound soaking wet little woman I'd ever known, rattling that figurine in the drawer, then by criminy, I wanted that sucker guarding my house. To this day, it sits on the corner cupboard right inside our front door. But thank God it's not had any rattling fits since then. Oh, and I did manage to salvage the African violet. This week's ghoulish fun comes from Suzanne, who plays us a haunting rendition of a Lady Gaga song. Have you ever wondered why we carve pumpkins on Halloween? Charleston in the legend of Stingy Jack and shed some fright on the subject. Thanks to Lori's voice acting friend Max for his spirited narration of this legend. Maybe the devil made him do it. Whoa!
the jack-o'-lantern. When we think of jack-o'-lanterns today, we think of the carved pumpkins with candles lighting them brightly from within. But did you know that the jack-o'-lantern actually has deep historical roots and originally didn't even involve a pumpkin? The jack-o'-lantern stems from an old Irish myth about a man named Stingy Jack. Stingy Jack. According to the story, Stingy Jack, an Irish blacksmith and notorious drunk, had the great misfortune to run into the devil in a pub. What are you doing here? Jack invited the devil to have a drink with him. True to his name, Stingy Jack didn't want to pay for his drink, so he convinced the devil to turn himself into a sixpence that Jack could use to buy their drinks in exchange for Jack's soul. Once the devil did so, Jack decided to keep the money and put it into his pocket next to a silver cross, which prevented the devil from changing back into his original form. Jack eventually freed the devil under the condition that he would not bother Jack and not try to claim his soul for 10 years. When the 10 years had passed, Jack ran into the devil as he walked down a country road. The devil was anxious to claim what was due, but Jack stalled. Jack thought quickly and said to the devil, I'll go, but before I do, will you get me an apple from that tree? The devil, thinking he had nothing to lose, climbed the tree and Jack pointed to the choicest apple. Perturbed, the devil climbed high into the tree after the apple Jack selected. When he was high up in the tree, Jack carved a sign of the cross into the tree's bark so that the devil could not come down. Jack, very proud of himself, made the devil promise to never again ask for his soul. Seeing no other choice, the devil reluctantly agreed. Soon after, Jack died. As the legend goes, God would not allow such an unsavory figure into heaven. The devil, upset by the trick Jack had played on him and keeping his word not to claim his soul, would not allow Jack to go into hell. Being unable to go to heaven or hell, Jack asked the devil where he should go. The devil only replied, the way back was very dark, so Jack begged the devil to at least give him a light to find his way. The devil tossed Jack burning coal from the fire of hell to light his way. The time has come. You will burn. Jack put the coal into a carved out turnip and has been roaming the earth with it ever since. The Irish began to refer to this ghostly figure as Jack of the Lantern and then simply Jack-o'-lantern. Today, we just say Jack-o'-lantern. In Ireland and Scotland, people believed that spirits and ghosts could enter their world on Halloween. These spirits and ghosts would be attracted to the comforts of their earthly lives. People not wanting to be visited by these ghosts would set food and treats out to appease the roaming spirits and began to make their own versions of Jack's lanterns by carving scary faces into turnips or potatoes and placing them into windows or near doors to frighten away stingy Jack and any other wandering evil spirits. In England, large beets are used. 
immigrants from these countries brought the jack-o'-lantern tradition with them when they came to the United States. They soon found that pumpkins, a fruit native to America, make perfect jack-o'-lanterns. They were softer and easier to carve than the turnips and potatoes of their homeland. So, the next time you see a jack-o'-lantern, especially one carved with a scary face in it, remember this Halloween when you're carving your own pumpkin, the moral of the story of Stingy Jack. <laughs> myself have a small contribution to this evening's frightening festivities. It's a campfire tale I like to call The Glass and the Cat. Come, sit around the campfire and I'll tell you the tale of the cats and the glass. It's unlucky to break a mirror. For cats, it's actually lucky. They have nine lives, and after each life, their soul escapes into the mirror. If the mirror breaks, they escape into a happier universe. But if you burn a mirror, it releases thousands of mad cats all at once. Huge, angry cats with red glowing eyes and an insatiable hunger for blood. Actually, nobody has ever burned a mirror and lived to talk about it. But from the giant hairballs with the bones in them, we think that's what happened to last year's campers. Here, I've got a mirror. Anyone want to try to throw it into the fire? The next day, the ranger happened along. Gee, these hairballs are bigger than last year. Please don't try this at home. We'll wrap up our evening with a cool Halloween song called I'm a Monster by Tiny Folk. This is your Halloween ghost host signing off. And remember, brave companions, to take care, because Lori really cares.